so hey, as we just read, we're back in Genesis. We had six weeks off. We were looking at the resurrection. We wanted to just take time to really dive in at the, e- the point of Easter. We don't want to just like do one week and then skim over and keep going, but we wanted to take time to pause and look at the resurrection of Jesus and the hope that it brings into our life. But as we've done that, we're transitioning back into the book of Genesis and we're looking at what I would consider like a pivot passage for us tonight, all right? So there's a pivot that's taking place in the book of Genesis with the chapter that we're looking at tonight. We're going from looking at what we've called the pillars of Genesis, which are the foundations that God has laid for this world that the rest of scripture and even our lives are built upon. We wanna take those time to look at those first 11 chapters, but now we're pivoting to the section of Genesis where we look at the patriarchs of Genesis, which are basically the the forefathers of the faith in the Bible. And at the very forefront of those forefathers is Abraham, which we meet in Genesis chapter 12. And the story of Abraham is sort of like this sneak preview of the rest of the Bible. So sneak preview, like uh, a movie showing, you bring in some people before it's been released. They want to get the audience reaction to the work that's happening so they can make some final tweaks on it. Or like an opening of a restaurant, they'll bring in people that they can come and have a soft opening that you get to experience that all the waiters and those things can kind of get their training and put their training to experience. I got to experience doing that. This is how lame I am. This is the only time that I've got to do any type of a sneak preview. It was at an opening of a Fazoli's. <laughs> it's the opening of a Fazoli's. I was in high school. One of my friends, he was scheduled to work there. So he invited me to come and I just ate endless amounts of breadsticks. That's all I can remember but that's the highest point of my sneak preview experience. Um, but in this story of Abraham, with this sneak preview, what is a sneak preview is that you get to see this pattern that we see that God practices throughout the rest of the Bible that's initiated here in the story of Abraham. It starts with Abram, and then it moves to an entire nation, and then from there in the New Testament, it moves to the entire world. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to look at this passage. First, I want us to just get to know who Abraham is, all right? Abram is his name in this passage. Um, I want us to just take some time to get to know him because he's a really important figure throughout the rest of the Bible. I also want to look at this story and see God's call and also the response that's placed on Abram's life because this is a really important passage for us to understand how God works throughout the rest of the Bible. And so I want us to take time to think and soak on that. And then we'll end with some application. Sound good? All right. So first, let's dive in. Let me introduce us. Let's consider who Abram is here. All right. So Abram, like I said, soon to be Abraham. He's one of the most referenced people in the Bible. You've, you've all heard him, right? You've all heard of Abram or Abraham. The Bible speaks really highly of him. There's two titles that many people have given who Abraham is. He's the father of the faith, and then he's also a friend of God. Two big titles, right? Father of faith and friend of God. We see both of those in the New Testament. So it's not just the Old Testament that's like paying tribute to Abraham and then Jesus comes on the scene. No, these are the titles that are given to Abraham in the New Testament. So really big deal, right? So as we would consider these big titles, we would imagine that Abraham is just this really special guy, right? That he has 
So there's something about his life that is actually really extraordinary. There's something special about him. He must be really virtuous. He must, or he must be really accomplished. Or he has to be this guy that's like just really motivated. He has this unique drive that's going on inside of him that really called out the attention of God that made God want to call out Abraham, want to call out Abraham to walk with him and to do big things through him. But what we actually see is Genesis 11 is where we really kind of get introduced to who Abraham is. And what we find about him in this short little section in Genesis 11 is that none of these things are true about Abraham. (laughs) So we have this big view about who Abraham is, especially if you've grown up in the church virtuous, accomplished, motivated, but that's not what we see in Genesis chapter 11. So let me just kind of work through this for us so I can give you the lay of the land about who this Abram is before we dive into the story of Genesis chapter 12. So Abraham must be like a really devout guy, right? He must have a, he must be extra spiritual for God to call out Abraham, for him to be the one that he has big plans for. But as you look at Genesis chapter 11, what you find is that this is actually not true about Abram's life at all. In fact, he actually likely worships other gods. So Joshua 24 verse 2, as Joshua is kind of ending, he's ending his life and he's talking to the nation of Israel. Here's what he has to say about Abram and his family. Um, Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, which is Abram's father, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River, and look at this, and worshiped other gods, all right? So here's, here's what's going on in Abram's life. They live in the land of Ur. The land of Ur is known for its worship of the moon god, listen to this name, Sin. <laughs> it's like, if there is something that should wake you up to, hey, what we're doing is wrong, is that the, the god that you're worshiping is named Sin, right? Well, that's what they do. In fact, this seems to be so ingrained in the life of his family that Abram's wife, Sarai, as well as his sister-in-law are both named after this moon god's wife and daughter, all right? So it's not just uh, happenstance. This is, seems to be something that's ingrained into the life of their family. So you have to immediately step back and say, okay, well, it doesn't seem like Abraham's actually all that super spiritual that he has this really close-knit relationship with God, and that's why God has called him out. So then you have to move to like what might be the next thing that a lot of us, especially in our culture, would imagine about this man, and that, that he is very accomplished. So he must be a pretty important person. He must have accomplished a lot of things. He's really Raising, risen through the ranks in the world, accumulated a lot. But if you look at Genesis chapter 11, you have to kind of surmise that, uh, not really. Okay, so at this time, wealth was measured mostly in the amount of land that you possessed, the size of your family, as well as the possessions that you have accumulated. And of all these things, the only thing that you might be able to say about Abram is that he has accumulated possessions, but that's about it. Because here's what we see in verse 30 of Genesis chapter 11. Sarai, his wife, was unable to conceive and she did not have a child. And as we're about to find out, this is true of Abram even at the point of 75. So, not like time is in his favor whenever it comes here to uh, 
growing his family. So it's not that he's like notably accomplished. He doesn't have a land. He doesn't um, have a large family that a lot of people would look at and say, wow, you're accomplished. Maybe some possessions, that's about it, right? And so from there, maybe you're like, well, maybe Abram is a diamond in the rough, right? He's got lots of drive, deep motor that's inside of him. But again, you have to surmise that this is probably not true of Abram from what we see in Genesis chapter 11. So what we see at the, in the very last verse is Terah, Abram's father. He picks up his family. They're going to travel to Canaan. And as they're on the way to Canaan, they come across a city called Haran. And what we find is instead of making their way to Canaan, they decide to settle into this town of Haran. And so we don't have a lot of details about why. I can't like bring to you X, Y, and Z. Here's why they didn't make it all the way to Canaan. What we do get is that we know that Haran was another place of the moon worship god of sin. And so uh, it's likely that they get to this place. It's like, ah, oh, this feels pretty familiar. This is good enough. And they decide to settle there. So you don't look at Abram's life and it's like, okay, he's driven. He's getting his family there. Terah, his dad just wants to settle in this place, Haran. But Abram's like, no, we're going to go. We're going to go take the land. We're going to get to Canaan. We're going to get there. We don't get this sense that there's this unique drive inside of Abraham or that he's this guy that just, he's so gifted, but he just needs his break, right? He just needs to get his break in life. And that once he finally gets his break, the world is truly going to know how special he is. He's just going to shine. He's this diamond in the rough. That's not what we get. What you really find here is that Abram probably is a lot just like you and me, right? Like he's just a normal guy. There's not anything that seems overly special about him. If the Alpha and Omega were sorting through all of the resumes that would be on the table about people that he would want to call out that would be the prized possession, there's nothing that seems to jump off the page about Abram, right? Yet, when we turn the chapter to Genesis chapter 12, God does something extraordinary in his life. So here's what I want to do. I want to look through the story in just two segments. So imagine it like a, a movie, all right? Imagine this like a movie. We have two different scenes that we're going to look at. We're going to look at the first scene, and we'll look at the second scene. And here's the first scene. First scene is uh, verses 1 through 3. So I want to look at this in two sections, all right? So here's the first one, all right? Five, five words, all right? The first five words. Here's what I want us to see. The Lord said to Abraham, all right? The Lord said to Abram, and I want to stop there, all right? Because I think what happens here is truly remarkable, all right? What we see here in these first five words is that God initiates with Abram. God initiates with Abram. God calls out this man. God takes the first step towards Abram, all right? So look, what I want us to see is that there's no filler, all right? A lot of other stories that you see throughout the, New, the Old Testament, you get these fillers from other books that kind of fill in some of the gaps that are left in some of the books that we look at. So this happens a lot with like the story of Moses. If you look at the book of Exodus, there's things that happen in Moses' life, and especially after Israel is taken out of Egypt and they're wandering in the wilderness, there's things that happen that there's gaps that happen in that story. But then you look at a book like Numbers and then you get a different perspective that fills in some of the gaps of that story. You don't get that. 
There's none of that with the, the story of Abram. Nowhere else in the Bible do you see that Abram takes the first step towards God. It's only God that takes the step towards Abram. He's still the same guy. He's not overly spiritual. He hasn't pursued God. There's not this unique connection that he has with this God who is in heaven. There's nothing that's accomplished about his life. There's no unique drive or motivator in this man. Yet God lovingly initiates salvation with Abram. That's what we see here in the very first five, five words here. Now, here's what you might, most of you have heard of the story of Abram. And so some of you may like push back a little bit. And here, here's, I want to respond to this pushback, right? So some of you probably know the reality that Abram comes from this man, Shem. Shem is the eldest son of Noah. If you think back to Genesis chapter 9, what happened in Genesis chapter 9, uh, the, it's the incident of the drunken nakedness of Noah after the flood. What happens with Shem? He honors his dad. He takes the blanket, walks backwards, covers his dad in his nakedness, and then he gets a blessing from his father. And so you may look at that and say, well, hey, hold up. Like, Abram is the descendant of Shem, right? Like, this blessing that comes with Shem. And so there, there is something special about this guy, right? Like there's something special that makes him a little bit unique. And here's my response to that. Is like, okay. Like if you, if you really want to like play that game, it's like, well, Abram's not the first descendant of Shem. Like there's multiple generations that have happened between Abram and uh, Shem here. And God doesn't do this with any other person, right? Like there's, there's nothing that is initiated in the life of other people. In Genesis 11, you don't look at anything and find anything that's uniquely special about what Abram has done to rise off the page to anybody else. Here's what I would say to that, all right? What you see here about this promise and this blessing that comes to Shem matters more about the nature of the God who makes the promise and the blessing than the person of Abram or Shem themselves. What you need to see is that the person that's actually unique in that situation is God, not the human that receives the blessing. Abraham does nothing. He's just a guy. There's nothing special that would cause God to come to this Abram outside of that God is the God who takes initiative. He's the one that is constantly stepping towards us. And as surprising enough as it is that God would initiate with Abram, what's even more astonishing is what he says in the verses that precede these first five, that God would even initiate Abram is astounding. But then what we see in these next view verses about the blessing that God speaks on Abram's life is truly amazing. All right. So verses one through three, one B through three, here's what it says. Go from your land your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I'll curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now check this out. This is incredible, all right? The word bless is used five times alone in Genesis 1 through 11. In the first three verses of Genesis chapter 12, you see it happen five times in and of itself. 
Moses is trying to capture our attention and see how unique the extraordinary work that God is doing in Abram's life here in these first three verses. Not only does God initiate with Abram, he also blesses him, all right? Here's, I have a chart for us, love charts, right? You can thank me later. Um, Here's how blessed God makes Abram. He changes his life, all right? So here, Genesis chapter 11, Abram has no land. He leaves Ur, he settles in Haran. He doesn't even get to where their family goal is to Canaan. But Genesis chapter 12, the blessing that God places on Abram, go to the land, I will show you. He's saying, hey, I have a promise here for you. Then you have Abram has no children. And here's the promise to him. At the age of 75, I will make you into a great nation. What? I don't have a child, God. I don't have a son. I have no offspring that can actually take this to fruition. But we see Genesis chapter 12, God changes his life. Then chapter 11, Abram has no significance. There's nothing that's really all that astonishing about Abram as we looked at. And then God makes the promise, I will make your name great. Look, God does all this before Abram does a single thing. God initiates with Abram, and then he speaks blessing over this Abram. Here's what I want us to see, all right? Here's the pattern that we need to notice that God's going to tease out through the rest of Scripture that starts right here. The love of God is an initiating love, not a reactionary love. The love of God is an initiating love and not a reactionary love. Look, God doesn't wait for us to come to him. What you see throughout the rest of the unfolding of Scripture and what we've had enough proof already in Genesis 1 through 11 is that if it's left up to us, we don't take the first step. We are the ones that decided in Genesis chapter 3 that we wanted a world that was separated from God. All of the world was bent on pursuing life and creating a world that was working its God out of this world in order for those people to experience this power and control over God's creation themselves. That's what our human nature is naturally bent towards. But we have a God who is so loving that his love is not reactionary, that whenever we finally take that first step that he welcomes us in with open arms. That's not who our God is. Our God is a God of love that initiates. He steps in. And look, not only does he initiate, but he treats us better than we deserve. He blesses us. You don't see God just come in and then right away confront Abram, just drag him through the mud. What we see is blessing here. This is the kindness and the goodness of God. Look, this is the pattern that we're going to see God tease out throughout the rest of Scripture, and it starts here with Abram. This is what God offers us when he lovingly initiates. Abram's story is our story, but look, there's a proper response. All right. There's a proper response to the way that when God comes and he initiates, and we see this in the next scene of the story. All right. So verses four through nine, let me reread it for us, and then we'll dive in. So Abram, Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. So this is his uh, nephew. Um, Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, 
Abram passed through the land of the site of Shechem at the Oak of Moreh. Now, this is a place that usually was a place of worship towards other gods, but see how God does a work in him. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Look, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. Whoa, right? This place that was used for worship of other gods, what Abram would have done before God initiated in his life likely would have gone to a place to set up worship for this other God that he worshiped. You see transformation that takes place in his life. God initiates again and brings out blessing. And what's the response? So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there, he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. He built an altar to the Lord there and he called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram journeyed by stages to the Negev. What is Abram's response to God here? It's belief, right? Abram believes the promise of the land. He's this person that doesn't have any significant land to him. God comes, initiates, brings promise and blessing on his life. And without clear direction, Abram picks up all that has been acquired in Haran and then picks up his family and he starts to go and he ends up following the command of the Lord. There's also belief of the promise of people. 75 years old, imagine trying to... God coming and speaking into your life here at the age of 75, promising that you're going to be a great nation. And you look at just how all of your life has unfolded up to that point, And you have to imagine there's at least some sort of wrestle that takes place inside of him. But what happens here? He believes. He picks up his family and he moves. And then lastly, there's belief of the promise of a great name. Look, there's recognition and reputation that comes with name at this point in time. It's not just, God's not just saying, I'm going to make your name well known to a lot of people, but it's also going to come with this great reputation of character. So look, what God is doing here is he's transforming Abraham's life. He's changing everything about Abram's story. And he's saying, I'm going to give you a new path. I'm going to give you a new future here by walking with me. And Abram says, I believe. And he picks up his family and he goes. Now, you may, like, again, I'm going to play devil's advocate, all right? So you may look at this and be like, well, see, Abraham, he does do something crazy. Like, there is something extraordinary about his life. He looks at the promise that God gives him, he picks up everything, and he believes, and he goes. He does something. That's, it's only because Abram goes that God actually fulfills the promises that are given to him in his life. But what you have to do, like, here's my, my pause, okay, that's true, but what does the Bible actually say about faith, right? This is what Abram's practicing here. This is what the rest of the Bible looks back to the story on. It says Abram has this great faith. But what does the Bible actually say about faith? It says it's a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for you are saved by grace through faith. And look, this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Not from works so that no one can boast. This is true of Abram, and this is true about the way that God works from this point forward throughout the rest of Scripture. One of my favorite stories and examples of men of remarkable faith is the story of George Mueller. Um, Mueller is this German fellow that was known for starting orphan homes. And uh, if you really get down to the nut and bolts of why uh, this George Mueller stepped into this career path of starting orphanages. Um, 
it wasn't just because he wanted to help the fatherless children, even though that is something that he wanted to do. It wasn't just because he cared for their spiritual well-being, which he actually did. But he actually wants to create these orphan homes from what he says is because he wants to show what amazing faith does and how trustworthy our God is. That's the whole point of why he starts these orphanages throughout um, his life. And one of my favorite stories that happens with this man um, happens over breakfast. And so um, he has about 300 orphans that are living in this particular home. And it's a morning. So these 300 kids wake up. The house mother comes to George and says, hey, all the kids are up. They're dressed. They're ready for the day. But we have no food. No food. We have nothing. And so George just kindly responds to her and says, hey, take all the kids, take all 300 kids, take them down to the dining room table. They all get down to the dining room table or seated at their seats around the dining room. Think like Harry Potter-esque, right? <laughs> like all, those, all the sortings. Um, and so you have all these 300 kids there. And what, what does George do? He has them stand up and he prays blessing over the food. Tables are blank. No food on the tables whatsoever. Has all the kids that are dressed up for the day, they praise over their food, and then look, within minutes, they hear a knock on the door, and there's a baker that comes to the front door, and he says, hey, Mr. Mueller, last night I, I couldn't sleep. Somehow I knew that you would need bread this morning. I got up, and I baked three batches for you, and I'll bring it in. So food brought into the whole entire 300 children, and then after that, it's like the room is a buzz, right? It's like, oh my gosh, look at this. There's food. We didn't have food. Now there's food. Look how God's provided here. You hear another knock on the door, and it's the milkman. His, his car is broken down, or his uh, vehicle is broken down in front. And he comes up to the door. He tells George, hey, all this milk is going to spoil um, before I can actually get the wheel fixed. So um, he asked George if he could use some free milk, and George is like, you have no idea, right? I just prayed blessing over this food and this drink that wasn't here. And so George smiled at the milkman and he brought in 10 large cans of milk and it was just enough for the 300 thirsty children to experience. Look, Mueller's life is littered with stories like this, right? Just a remarkable man of faith. Like he, he, he showed such faith and trust in God's, the whole purpose of why he even started these orphanages in the first place and for a man that has such remarkable faith, listen to what he has to say about faith. Here's what he says. It is true that the faith which I am enabled to exercise is altogether God's own gift. It is true that he alone supports it and that he alone can increase it. It is true that moment by moment I depend upon him for it and that if were only I one moment left to myself, my faith would utterly fail. Faith is a gift. Unique gift. Not something that comes to extraordinary people. It's the gift of God. So look, the same holds true for us. For Abram, it's not because he was this extraordinary man. It was a gift that he received of faith that followed this call that God placed on his life. You have stories like George Mueller. You have countless other examples from the moment that of Abram all the way to present day. Stories that we just wouldn't even have time to recollect, right? 
Abram is the sneak preview, though, to the rest of the Bible. He gives us this pattern by which God is going to work throughout the course of redemptive history to the point of even today in the way that he works in our lives. Here's the what we can see in this passage, that God lovingly initiates salvation. There is nothing that any one of us in this room have done to get the glimmer of God's eye down on you that has made him desire you so much that he's prized you and he's welcomed you into his family. It is all the work of God on your behalf. And look, you have stepped out in faith if you've trusted in, belie- in Jesus and believed in Jesus and the work that he's done for you. But look, this response of faith is even a gift. We see this pattern here with Abram, and it's our story too. It starts with an individual Abram. It moves to the nation of Israel that you see in Exodus, and then it extends to the world. And look, the greatest expression of this comes in Jesus himself. What does God do in Jesus? God initiates the world. You look at Jesus' life, look, 33 times in the book of John, it says that Jesus was sent. Jesus was sent. Jesus was sent. Why was he sent? Not because he came to condemn the world, but so that he might save the world. We get the greatest expression of all this, the initiating and the blessing that we find in Jesus Christ in 1 John 14, just so compacted here. Look, love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Look, here's what God has done in your life. He has initiated you. There is nothing, absolutely nothing that you exuded in your life that made God want to put his foot forward towards you. It is all his work. And then all that's been poured out for you is blessing. You have the atoning work of Jesus. What we see after this in Ephesians 1, 3, what Paul tells us is that all of the spiritual heavenly blessings are yours. You have relationship with God. God Almighty, the living God, has stepped towards you, initiated relationship with you, done everything that you could have relationship with him, and now has all blessings on your life. Look, he's poured out grace on you. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense All of this has been given towards you, and it is the pattern that we see throughout all the Bible, throughout all redemptive history, and it's yours. It's the goodness of our God. And look, what we see is that there's only two appropriate responses for us here. It's I don't want to ask anything different of you, um, whether a Christian or baby Christian or not a Christian at all yet. All I want is to ask you to do what the Bible has asked you to do since the point in time of Abram here in Genesis chapter 12. The first one is believe. Have faith. Have faith. Here's what Romans 10 says. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is the pattern, right? It is the pattern of the entire Bible. Anytime that you see a reference to Abraham in the New Testament, it is looking towards him as the example of faith that we have now expressed in Jesus Christ. What's said about Abraham is that he looked forward to a day. He looked forward to a land that God was going to bring towards him in this life. Look, we are no different. 
We are no different. We are the people that await the new heavens and the new earth. We are the people that look to God in order for us to receive a family, followers of Jesus from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue, brothers and sisters that we get to dwell with for all eternity. We are the same people that have been given a name, beloved, that Christ has done everything for you so that now when God looks at you, he doesn't see the sin-tainted person, but he sees the beauty of Jesus inside of you. And what does he call you? He calls you beloved. You are blessed. You are the people of God. You will dwell with him forever. This is the hope that Abraham had. This is the hope that has been given to us in Jesus Christ. And look, all that is asked of you is to believe. And look, it's a gift. You can't, it's not even like, hey, muster up all of your strength to put your faith and put your foot forward. And if you put your foot forward, then God's going to come after you. No, what you see in this life is anytime that you put your foot forward and you look back, you always see it was God's strength that was bringing you forward. That's, he's given you everything. He's done all of the work for you, including the faith that he gives you to believe. So look, believe, believe. Trust in the work that Christ has done for you. It's what Abram has done. It's what happens with the nation of Israel. It's what it is ultimately climax in the coming of Jesus in the saving of this world. The second one is this, is that you live sent. You live sent. Another pattern that you see in the story of Abram and it's teased out through the rest of the Bible is that God brings us in in order to send us out, right? God blesses us to be a blessing to others. He draws us in to know him and then he sends us out to make him known to others. This is what we see over and over again in the Bible, y'all. We see it with Abram. He's brought in. God makes himself known to Abram, speaks blessing over him. What does he say in the promises? I'm gonna bless you in order to be a blessing to others. Then he goes. Then you see God liberate Israel from Egypt. Why? So that they can be a light unto the nations, so that they can show them the goodness and kindness and graciousness of God before the watching nations. And then what happens from there? We see the world. God sends Jesus not to, to, to condemn the world, but to save the world. He shows us that all people have an opportunity to walk and live in relationship with the living God. How? Through this Jesus. And then as Jesus is about to be ascended to heaven, as he's about to go to his rightful place, the throne at the right hand of God, what happens? Jesus tells us to go. The same word that's used for Abram in Genesis chapter 12 is then used for every single person that has placed faith and hope and belief in Jesus. We are all people that are called out to live sent. This is true for you. This is true for me. Look, there are no professional Christians. This is not a call just for pastors or missionaries that pick up their families and move overseas. This is for every single one of us. There are no exceptions. Here's what Charles Spurgeon has to say about this. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter, period. Look, this is the reason that we even started this church, <laughs> all right? The reason that we even started this church is because there was a small group of people that came together, realized that we have been blessed by God, that God has done such a rich and extraordinary kind work 
in our lives, and we wanted to leverage our life in order for other people to hear this good news. Like, it's why we even have the kingdom prayer, this vision, this desire that we want to see, that it's not just storyline that is planted here in St. Louis, but praying that God would be kind to us, that we'd be able to plant five other churches in the next 10 years. Like, that's a kingdom-sized prayer, right? Like, 10 years, five new churches. Man, there's a unique work that God has to do, but man, we're praying. We're praying that the extraordinary work he's done in our life, that he would do in other people's lives. And look, it starts with this call that we live sent that we embrace the call that Abram had and received from God that you and I receive from Jesus himself when we call on the name of Jesus and trust in him for eternal salvation. He gives us this call to live sin. So this means, look, that we live sin in our location where we live. We, we want to practice what we believe, what we learn in the Bible, and that, that we have a God who is providential. There is no happenstance with our God. You live next to the neighbors that you live next to because God placed you there. And so you are the people that live sent. You do this in your vocation where you work. It's no coincidence that you work in the place that you work, that you are, have the gifts and the abilities that God has given you to work in the roles that you do now, the roles that you're going to have in the future. These are no coincidence. God has given you, he's wired you, he's gifted you in such a way, look, that he's done a work by drawing you in helping you understand the work and the kindness and the goodness of this God so that you then can go be a blessing to those people that you work with, where you play, your recreation. Not even your hobbies are a coincidence, y'all. Do you like to play pickleball? It's no coincidence. It's no coincidence that you live in the day and age that you do, that you have tennis courts that have been redone to be pickleball courts, and now you have this desire to go get this little wooden paddle and then go hit a ball over a little string, you know? Like, the relationships, the people that you rub shoulders with, all God's plan. Restoration, where there's need. Look, you are a people that recognize that you've been reconciled to God. There has been a restoration that's happened in your life. This should awaken our eyes to look to the places of need. We believe that there is a God who restores dead people to life. That means he still does that in our world today too. So we should be the people that aren't navel-gazing but have our eyes lifted up that we look around where the need is for us. What does Jesus say about us that follow him that we're the salt and the light of the world? What does that mean? There's preservation and then there's renewal that takes place because of the work the Holy Spirit will do through you. And so we're the people that look up and we see where there's need and we're the people that step in because we are the salt and light of the world. We are the people that God intends to use to bring restoration in this world. And then lastly, the next generation. On a Mother's Day like this, where we think about moms and the blessing that they are and the kids that come from these moms and the care that's provided to them, we also recognize that we've been brought into a family of God. And so look, this is why we place emphasis on storytellers. This is why we have an emphasis on going through a curriculum that's going to walk them through the gospel each and every Sunday when they gather here. This is why we want to be a church that's continually investing in these kids and seeing them grow up in the faith, that we want to be a part and partner with families, that they're sharing the good news of Jesus because we are a people that want to see even the littlest of us, the ones that Jesus said, don't turn them away from me, but welcomes them with open arms that we step into their lives. And these are kids that need the good news. We're the people that step in in every facet, all dimensions of life that we live sent. Your home, 
your work, where you play, places of need, and even those that God has entrusted to your care, whether they be from your own flesh and blood or part of the faith family that God has brought together here. We live sent. So look, I, let me share a story that um, I think kind of puts this together. Here's what I believe. Like, man, if we live into this, if we are the people that live sent, here's what I believe can happen to us. All right, I heard this story this past week. It's this story of a guy uh, by the name of David Bennett. So Bennett was a, a sexual rights activist in Australia, and uh, he experienced this, this radical conversion of life in Christ, all right? And so um, you know how this radical conversion took place in his life. It, it wasn't just, it wasn't an arguing him. It wasn't apologetics, like you sat down, you argued the different defenses of Scripture, and he was like, oh, finally, I'm convinced, and he gave his life to Jesus. No, it was the initiation of God's love through a person living sin. Here's what happens, all right? He's meeting at a pub with a friend, Melanie, um, over a beer. <laughs> yeah, we can do that. So Melanie is this well-known producer of short films, and uh, she was up for an award. And um, so Bennett, like, curious about her life and all the things that are happening to her, says, what, what made you want to make this short film? And so Melanie looks back at Bennett and says, uh, well, do you want, like, the answer that I give to the media, or do you want, like, the real answer? And uh, David's like, well, of course, like, I want the real answer. You're my friend. I want to hear, like, what's the reason that you came up and you made this uh, short film? And so she's, she looks back at David and says, well, I think God called me to do it. I think God told me to make this short film. And so immediately Bennett's mind is like, oh, my gosh. This is just like this fundamentalist, like this, like all the worst things that you can think about a Christian, right, like his, are going off in his mind. And so he, he engages on her. And he's like, what do you mean, like, God in general, or like just like some spiritual experience, or what do, like what do you mean by all this? And so, um, all he's thinking in his head is, please don't say Jesus, <laughs> please don't say Jesus, like just don't be that one. And so Melanie looks back at him, looks like in his eyes, it's like, well, I, I believe Jesus is the one that told me to make this. And so they go back and forth. He and Melanie are talking through this. And so Bennett's like, man, I, I'm an agnostic. He's actually, at this point in time, he was wrestling with atheism at that point in time. And so Melanie, as they're talking over their beers, um, looks at him and says, hey, can I tell you something? Like lots of dialogues going on, lots of curiosity that's taking place. She says, hey, can I just tell you something? Like God loves you. Like, God genuinely, seriously loves you. And so he looks back at her and he's like, I, no one's ever told me that. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine, like, sitting down with a friend, sharing with them, hey, just the basic, God loves you. Yeah, like, he's like, no one's ever told me that. No one's ever told me that. And so Melanie, like, leans back over again and she's, hey, can I just pray for you? Can I, like, can I just I just pray for you. With all this going on, uh, everything that we've talked about with your life, can I just pray for you? He's like, I, I mean, I don't really believe that's going to do anything for me, but if it makes you feel better, then yeah, you can pray for me. And so Melanie, over a beer at the pub, starts praying for David Bennett. And he says that something that he never would have expected happened. He says that Melanie starts to pray over him. And he says that the Holy Spirit just like came over him. He said it was like liquid love that just came over his whole entire body. It was something that he couldn't really try to put into like 
an experience or words that he's ever had in this life, but it was like this liquid love just comes over his body. He said it was like light that was shining into my dark soul. He was like, it was a love that I've been searching for in every hookup relationship that I'd ever experienced in this life, but it was better. And he said in the midst of all of this, this great experience of love that he was experiencing as Melanie's praying over him, he says that he hears the whisper of God, not like an audible voice, but just this voice in his own soul saying, David, do you want me? He says it four times, David, do you want me? David, do you want me? Hey, David, David, right here, do you want me? And he said that David, he didn't even know that he was wanting God or that he was searching for God, but all he could feel his soul say was just this exuberance, yes. And so after this beer that he has with Melanie, look, here's what happens. God initiates through someone that lives sent and a person that had known about God had heard other people talk about God, but no one had personally looked him in the eyes and said, God loves you. That cared enough about what was going on in David's life and story that looked at him and said, even in the midst of knowing that he had zero belief, hey, can I pray for you? And what does God do? He initiates, he strikes relationship, and he saves. Look, it's the story that happens with Abram it's a story that happens throughout the rest of the Bible. Look, it's even the story that happened with you. It's because someone lives sin. Look, there's no, no coincidence that you live next to the people that you do. There's no coincidence that God works the way that he does. He has called you. He said, go. So look, again, maybe for the for the second time, maybe you like, it's like, man, I, I've just been wrestling with my faith and I struggle to believe. Maybe it's like, okay, believe that God initiates. I can look back at my life, can look at all the things that he's done. It's the pattern that he's done in scripture. I, okay, I, Jesus, I believe. But then look, go. You've been blessed in order to be a blessing. And I believe, I believe that when we step out in faith and live sent, just as what we saw Melanie do, we'll experience the same in our own life too. May God do it. May God do it. Let's pray.